This is Keeping Connected, a special series produced through the Connected Nation podcast. In this series, we talk with leaders working to secure the broadband and digital futures of our communities. Specifically, we talk with individuals who serve in varying public or private capacities, working to ensure our communities are keeping connected. I'm your host, Wes Kerr. Today's guest is Joshua Edmonds, the City of Detroit's Director of Digital Inclusion, and is responsible for Connect 313, which I'll quote from the website, is a city data-driven digital inclusion strategy that brings countless organizations together with the bold goal to make Detroit a national model for digital inclusion and ensure all Detroiters can access the digital world and the opportunity it brings. Prior to his current role, Joshua spent time engaged at the University of Michigan as a digital inclusion policy fellow, digital innovation fellow at the Cleveland Foundation, and a public service fellow at the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority. Joshua holds a BA from Notre Dame College and a master's from Howard University. Thanks for joining us today, Joshua. Thank you for having me today. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, it's exciting. I know uh, I followed the work that you do there in Detroit and, and even before that for, for some time now. And uh, it's exciting to have you on. A, a lot of our folks have had kind of a statewide uh, view of of technology and broadband, and uh, we've had some rural focus, and so it's exciting to have someone with the urban focus on today. Uh, but before we get into to all those different things, I, I've been trying to get folks to uh, loosen up a little bit, and, and one of the ways I've been doing that is to just ask them what they do with their free time, and I put free time uh, in, in air quotes because most of our folks are so busy, I, I don't know what that actually means for them, uh, but I'm curious what we might find you doing with your free time. <laughs> well, uh, it's it, this actually might be the toughest question to answer. I, I like the, the the other ones more, but no, um, I, it's a combination. So I've actually started working out a lot more. Uh, I, I used to be an NCAA athlete, so that never really left me. But in addition to that, um, I also have picked up playing video games again. And I, I can't stand that I'm going to relay this back into uh, the digital divide discussion, but as I'm playing these video games, you need an internet connection for some of them. And the minute it, it dips, um, yep, back to the same old frustration. So my free time is uh, <laughs> an interesting reminder of the work that I still do, yet it still affords me the, the unique opportunity to be able to unplug and at least have some peace for um, a, a moment, even if it is compromised by the internet still. Uh, I understand. I myself played video games earlier on in my life. And, and now that I have kids, uh, I, I'm kind of reintroducing myself again. And so getting back to Nintendo and some Mario and, and uh, having a lot of fun with that. But uh, yeah, the, the internet thing definitely rears its head every once in a while amongst my family, and, and especially when there's uh, maybe a game of Mario Kart going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you're mentioning the Nintendo Switch, which yeah, that is my outlet as well right now. So I overstand that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joshua, let's get into the conversation today. And I think for one, one thing that would be good would be great to, if you could explain a little bit about the Department of Innovation and Technology where you serve and, and more specifically about your role as the Director of Digital Inclusion. Sure. So this uh, is, is, a lot of this is birthed from Beth Niblock, who is the city's chief information officer. And Beth had the uh, astounding vision to say a lot of the digital inclusion landscape, whether urban or rural, you find nonprofits, academic institutions uh, really trying to carry the brunt of the work. And she said, what would happen if we had 
a municipal government, specifically one person, that every single day they woke up and they went to bed and the only thing they they thought about was a digital divide. What if we did that? And contextually, (laughs) I have to give her credit because if municipal government uh, is an aggregate of federal spending allocated from the state level, and you don't have that that spending, you know, for digital equity in an urban context, and even in a rural context, what in the world is a director of digital inclusion supposed to do? And so that kind of leads into exactly what um, we've been doing um, with Connect Three and Three, which was letting the city really establish this ecosystem lens. Because the city is going to be the unique entity that is going to see how banking intersects with with our residents, how healthcare access, how distance learning, how workforce empowerment, and every single other sector where the digital divide manifests, the city government is going to be able to see that and be able to determine the partnership structure that's necessary to be built to empower the residents. And so my job, and specifically within the Department of Innovation Technology, is really stewarding this ecosystem, while at the same time, not owning the digital equity system outright, because it's not really for, it's not really, you know, the municipal government, we can't own that. However, we can definitely shepherd and steward as we see the, the larger political landscape. And as we see the sectors and the various intersections, making sure and championing the cause of digital equity anywhere possible. Yeah. And so could you take a minute too to, to talk uh, through kind of what 313 is, some of the things, some of the successes you've seen there with 313 um, and, and kind of the, I guess, part of the, the vision behind that? Yeah. So it's funny. As, as you know, you look at my background, I got my start working on the digital divide in public housing. And so that really taught me a pretty aggressive lesson early on about the role and the attitude that one, how internet service providers um, oftentimes are treating residents who are having challenges paying for service, but two, even the prevailing attitude um, that residents are having from prolonged underconnectivity. And so that informed my perspective on what needs to be happen on the ground. In addition to that, when I was working at the Cleveland Foundation, being able to understand investment confidence and philanthropic contributions to the digital divide allowed me to say, okay, what makes sense from a sustainable funding standpoint? And what makes sense that maybe philanthropy is not the best uh, equipped model to be able to support, but maybe federal government or, or any type of other larger intervention is. And so those experiences, juxtaposed with my experience at University of Michigan and my current one in municipal government, that's allowed us to frame the need for this ecosystem solution, which then birthed Connect 313. So I birthed Connect 313 um, with the number one vision of ensuring every single Detroiter is fully digitally connected and to the digital world and opportunity it brings. And it's like, okay, what does that actually mean though? And what that means is anywhere where we can place an emphasis on learning, employability, and well-being as it relates to connectivity, that's where we need, we need to be tailing our efforts. So Connect 3 is really a larger umbrella that represents the macro of the digital divide. And then we have micro efforts within that. So last year, we were very thankful to be able to um, raise a significant amount of uh, private capital, mainly, and a smaller amount of uh, CARES Act funding. But we raised about $23 million at the beginning of last year to connect every single public school student with internet, computers, tech support, and um, larger uh, school support from a um, training standpoint. And that resulted 
That was one that was $23 million. And that resulted in um, us branding that as Connected Futures. And then after that, <laughs> we received $4 million from the state to do telehealth for um, seniors in Detroit. We, we referred to that as Connecting Seniors. So on one hand, you hear Connected Futures, then you are Connecting Seniors. And, you know, one thing that we really wanted to get good at and what we've already been able to demonstrate is that if you make investments in a sound strategy, that then births other investments that we're able to then um, 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 receive additional investments from larger entities. So in Detroit, as we are doing our fundraising, we've established a Connect 3 on 3 fund. That fund um, was originally, <laughs> the initial fundraising was from a golf tournament where we raised about $2.1 million through the Rocket Mortgage Classic. Wow. That investment then led us into saying, how do we coordinate this funding? How do we build a coordinated ecosystem? Because yeah, in the beginning, you hear me talk about all these various sectors and their intersections, but how are they coordinated? And so the coordinating um, um, really falls into various categories as we begin to focus on neighborhood technology hubs. As we focus on collecting better data to frame the issue, we can you know, double and triple click down into why we would need to do that from a data standpoint. But in addition to those, how, how, how do we start um, spending money as it relates to advocacy? All of these questions and more are all within the Connect 313 ecosystem. And so just recently, this past about a month ago, we finally completed a resident election. We elected community leaders to then tell us how best to begin eradicating the digital divide in a hyper-local sense. And so that is an internal grant-making conversation as it relates to our Connect 313 fund. But at the same time, we're looking at you know, another round of telehealth funding from the FCC. We're looking at various other initiatives that are lining up in the federal level that afford urban um, and rural uh, communities the opportunity for additional federal funding. And so what we're doing within Connect 313, on one hand, we're focusing on how do we internally coordinate and power our ecosystem, but at the same time, how do we externally attract additional resources to then make this work much more sustainable and give it the level of decorum that's needed to sustainably bridge the digital divide? So if there's one way to look at Connect 313, it is an ecosystem comprised of various actors and a community governance structure that is, on one hand, empowering the community by lending a voice aided with internal resources that we've been able to fundraise from the internal ecosystem, but at the same time, externally looking at grant-seeking opportunities for us to be able to leverage the current political momentum for hyper-local impact. Connect 313 mission statement makes notes uh, of making Detroit a national model for digital inclusion, and that's a bold statement to be certain, and one with or one worth the, the resources and effort necessary to make it happen. How do you feel about progress towards that goal? And what are the, the needs for achieving that goal beyond where you all stand now? So <clears throat> I, I think even before I go into that part, I'll say that uh, <laughs> the reason why uh, the, the, the national model, uh, wh where did that come from? That honestly came from, one, us acknowledging the fact that if you were to look in 2019, where all your municipal directors of digital inclusion were, well, there was only one that was in Detroit. And so at that point, we already, by virtue, even if we didn't admit it, we were already having to say that we were going to be the national model because we then had to justify the investment that was already made into creating this position. But 
if Detroit got it right and everyone got it wrong, that's awful for Detroit. That's awful for, for, for everything that we did. It needs to be replicable because if we need this to scale and if we need those additional resources investing, we need to convey that investment confidence. And so we need to be that national model. We need to be operating at a level of decorum that then allows other communities to say, wow, Detroit did it. We can too. So what's happening right now? Baltimore just announced they're hiring a director of digital inclusion. New York City is hiring a director of digital inclusion. Uh, I'm talking to a bevy of other communities who have indicated interest in hiring directors of digital inclusion. So that's where you hear us saying the national model, because if we were going to go first in hiring this, then we need to make sure that we are operating at the level that communities can feel empowered to replicate this at scale. And so when we look at the progress indicator of where we are, so through this entire time, we've raised about $30 million. And we're definitely going to raise much more this year. Uh, there, there's no doubt in my mind on that. And the the capital part is nice because it shows that we're onto something. But I would say that from a connectivity standpoint, from a data standpoint, I think that you know certain people have a different definition of what it means to to win here. And so for me, <laughs> like the national model play. I think that was achieved almost last year when um, you know I was thankfully and graciously invited to um, testify in front of Congress in January of last year, um, and that was, in my opinion, a defining moment because we were the only city uh, invited to testify, and so at that point, I think the stage was set, and so everything that we did last year was really us reinforcing our our, our positioning, and so. Do we have a ways to go? Yes. Our mission says to put in place by 2024 <laughs> the, the, and, and the, the, the necessary initiatives that are needed for, for Detroiters to be fully digitally included. And so, you know, it's 2021 right now. We are ahead of schedule as it relates to the amount of resources we've been able to acquire. I think a pandemic uh, co-signed that in a way. But as we move forward, it's not even just a funding thing. Now we're going into, I would say, digital, the digital divide 2.0, where most people in most communities, whether urban, rural, or tribal, are still looking at the, how do we get people internet? How do we get people computers? How do, you get, how do we facilitate digital literacy training? And that's not to say that we're not out of those woods. I mean, we're, we're still there, but I think that we've made significant strides to the point that we need to start asking the question, now that our people are connected, how are we empowering them? And how do we empower them in perpetuity? How do we look at the digital divide as uh, operating on the bleeding edge? And as technology progresses, the divide widens. How do we make sure that we have a mechanism that is established that is going to continuously afford opportunities as technology continues to change? And so for for me today, I'm optimistic from a um, football game standpoint. I'll say that we're at halftime and I think we're out by a field goal. But at the same time, the game is far from being over. But I think that we've made um, a lot of incredible strides. And uh, I really think that from a replicability standpoint, as we see additional directors of digital inclusion popping up across the country, I think that affords us the unique benefit to beat our chest a little bit and say, yeah, we're doing a great job, but the game isn't over yet. Yeah, and I would I would say that I, I have seen a considerable interest in those types of roles, uh, even recently saw uh, multiple positions in the city of Houston uh, looking for uh, 
it, you know, digital inclusion type roles. So it, it is, I think it's a nod to what the work that you are doing and the city of Detroit has done. And as we kind of think through this, uh, you know, what would it be possible to discuss what you believe the com- the commonalities are between urban and rural digital divide? And and before we got on, I, you know, we were talking a little bit and it's, it sometimes seems as though we're trying to uh, put these two different types of geographies uh, against one another, put them in contention with one another uh, when it relates to broadband and technology, you know, adoption or access, adoption and use. And and so I'm just curious, you know, what, what do you think some of the commonalities are? And and then I think, you know, once we discuss that, I, it would be good to hear your thoughts on how, uh, you know, smaller, I won't even say rural, but just smaller communities begin to replicate some of the work that, that you've done in Detroit. So, yeah, this is I love this question because it does give it a unique opportunity to, to, to clear the air. I think that the perception of the friction or potential infighting between the two camps, you know, a lot of that has to do with just resource allocation. The federal government has really made a point to invest in connecting America. And I think we see that and we acknowledge that that is um, a necessity. Uh, I think most of the practitioners, even in the urban context, will say, good, the federal government needs to prioritize rural investment. But I think what's happened is they prioritize rural investment to <laughs> then saying we're not going to prioritize urban in, in, in any way. And I think that it's like it's, it, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, even a, even 1% of, <laughs> of an investment, I'm obviously not going to ask for something that small, but I think that's where some of the friction is coming from. But the commonalities are, are, are very clear. Uh, you know, I look at the fact that, one, my parents actually live in rural America. My parents live in rural Arkansas. Um, and this is something where this issue obviously affects us. Um, you know, hearing my dad's frustration talking about why do I have to pay so much money for super slow internet? It's as if I might, I might as well not even buy it. And I'm like, you know how pervasive that attitude is, <laughs> one in America in general, but in urban communities too, through digital redlining and under and disinvestment from your, um, incumbent internet providers, how many people are actually living in areas with awful service, yet they're paying the same for people who are living in great areas? Like it, this is, this is, that's an attitude that persists amongst people who just aren't being prioritized. In addition to that, we can look at income. We can say that income is one heck of a um, indicator to ascertain whether someone has internet connectivity or not, or prolonged internet connectivity. So anywhere where you're going to find people living in poverty, rural and urban, they're going to be least least likely to adopt. Anyone who is least likely to have a high school diploma, again, least likely to adopt. And so as we begin looking at connecting people, we're talking about the same people. The only difference is <laughs> you just so happen to live in this geography over here, over this one over here. But these are the same people. People have been relegated to the sidelines and who are forced into having one option or no options. And that happens in urban communities and rural communities. In the urban context, how that plays out, let's just say you have a family that's on one side of the town. Um, Doesn't matter. Well, we'll just say the east side of Detroit. That family uh, is advertised to providers, but realistically, that one provider that says they serve there, after that family goes through all the time trying to figure out and trying to connect things, that provider says, oh, actually, you're not within our service area. Sorry. So then this person only actually has one option. But see, this family has a lot of bills to pay. And after a while, they can no longer afford the service. 
So then <laughs> they have this massive debt with this internet company. Now this internet company is ruining their credit. And then I, Joshua Edmonds, in my role at the city, I'm supposed to figure out a way to facilitate this. We're left without options. All poverty is, at the end of the day, rural, tribal, or urban is a lack of options. And so I think that when we begin looking at the commonalities between the digital divide is exacerbated by the lack of options, by the lack of provider competition, by the lack of options for digital literacy training, by the lack of options for funding. It can't just be we're pointing at one entity to say they're going to fund us all. It doesn't work that way. And so the lack of options have really manifested in a way where um, the wicked case of irony that ironically, we're now probably much more connected in the way that we need to be advocating and championing for this than in the past, because these lack of options are really coming to a head now. And so I, I think that from a, again, urban, rural standpoint, while yes, the challenges are different. Yes, I know that the access problems are significantly more pervasive in urban and rural America, significantly. But there's still significant challenges in urban America as it relates to access. And both in the adoption piece, again, anywhere where you're going to find people living in poverty, those challenges are going to persist. No, that's a great perspective. And, and certainly, you know, we talk oftentimes about access, adoption, and use. And, and, and you know, I can go in a community and begin talking with a group of folks and, and, and you know, everybody wants to talk about access. And, and that's not to say that access isn't important, but, but it's, you know, it's two sides of the coin and you don't get the coin if you don't have both sides. Right. And, and so right. adoption and use is so important. And, and like you said, it's not just about, uh, about literacy, but it really is. How do we empower and, and leverage these tools so that we have communities that are, are able to, to really thrive in the future, um, not just survive, but how can they thrive in the future by leveraging these types of tools? And, and like you said, when, when you have those kinds of um, pervasive issues, uh, it's it behooves all of us to to find ways to to contribute and and to elevate those issues uh, so that we can you know hopefully eradicate the issue. Uh, and so as we talk about that and move into that, do you have any kind of suggestions about you know what we can all do to help be involved with um, projects like Connect Three One Three or 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 for that matter just helping solve this digital divide issue? Yes. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think I um, in, in, in your previous question, I think that there was a part that I didn't answer, which was, you know, what can communities do? And I think this is part of one of the same. But, you know, the, the, the role that I played in Detroit at the very beginning, uh, I didn't I couldn't put a, a finger on it, but I was advocating and I was hustling. <laughs> I, I don't know how to say it, but I was hustling. I was out there literally Every single week, four to five community events after work. I'm going to churches. I'm going everywhere I can to try and build up this advocacy base. Because for so long, we've been duped by our internet providers thinking that we as individuals, if I have an issue with my internet provider, I'm calling them. And if you have an issue with your internet provider, you're calling them. But where's the collective body behind you? If you're getting railroaded, are the American people really empowered by then? No, they're not. We're literally going as individuals to corporations. Where's your power there? But imagine if you had a whole entire community saying the same thing. Well, then you would, it, it, it would force them to move and it would force them to operate and serve us in that way. And so the first thing I'm going to say to any community that really wants to be, be serious about this, you know, it, it's great to have a, 
a handful of advocates, but you need that community behind you. You need your businesses behind you. You need your residents behind you, all demanding and all on one page, one accord. The thing that we've done with Connect Through and Through, we have an emphasis on values. A few of our values, you know, are we're, we're, we're locally led, but we're expertly informed. So we're not going to turn away the, uh, obviously, the, the expert counsel that's, that's going to be afforded to us. In addition to that, we progress at the speed of trust. So as a lot of things that we're doing right now, there's so much distrust as it relates to technology, so much. Every single day, another identity that gets stolen, that trust is being compromised in this internet infrastructure. So the longer we go without trust being a value that we ubiquitously are going to hold up, then at that point, we're compromising our very movement and our, our, our momentum. And so as communities who are looking to engage, I don't care if you're a town of 10 people, you all get on the same page, <laughs> reference the same data. I would get so infuriated when I would be going and I'd see, I'd hear people saying 50% of Detroiters don't have internet of any kind. I'm like, where in the world are you getting that data? Because the more that I get up there and I'm saying, hey, no, 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 no. It's about, you know, 25%. And then you get up there and say 50, that allows someone to discount what we're saying and say, oh, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. Talk to us when you're ready. And so the advice that I would give any community, small, medium, large, whatever, Let's place an emphasis on the values. Let's get the shared language down. And maybe this is one that is probably afforded to some of the larger governance structures. Um, but identifying that point person who is going to wake up and go to bed every single day thinking about the digital divide and have that person within municipal government. And obviously, this is I, I've gone on record probably 30 million times at this point. But, you know, reconstituting the state broadband office would be nice. Um, for Michigan, because then that allows all of these local leaders to then be in line with the state priorities. And so if I'm a community right now, I'm looking at saying, as they're looking at uh, doing their uh, budgeting for the year, hey, it doesn't cost much, but can we get someone who's looking at broadband affairs in our community? Someone that can champion this cause, because if not, it's going to be more of the same, one resident versus one corporation. And America has taught us over and over again, who is going to win in that instance. And so this is our way of saying, hey, there might be a way around this. There might be a collective empowerment plan in place that you might not be able to do everything Connect Through and Three has been able to do. You might not be able to raise $30 million, but maybe you don't need to. But at the very least, what we need to do as an emphasis on values, emphasis on data, and definitely an emphasis on um, uh, holding public officials accountable and at least empowering the public office to have this as a focus to champion this cause beyond their geographies. Joshua, there's there's so much that resonates with with the conversations that we have at the local level uh, with with communities all over, you know, not only Michigan but but in other states as well. And I actually spent an hour this morning with with two residents who are struggling with finding broadband service in in the Western UP. Uh, you know, and, hmm. and and essentially it was the same thing. You know. It, you need to get the collective voice together, uh, you know, and and you need to understand what you do and do not have. And and ultimately, as a group, uh, you know, understand what you're looking for and and have the facts and the data behind that to be able to then have an empowered conversation. And, and you know, we, we have that conversation so often, uh, but, it, but it's ironic to, to think about the you know, the scope of Detroit compared even, you know, to the conversation I had this morning, like I said, with two residents in, in the Western UP, uh, you know, and, and who 
you know, they're talking several hundred potential households in a, in a very large area in, in comparison to the conversation of thousands of households that you deal with on a daily basis. Uh, so it, it's, it's neat and it resonates and it isn't just an urban and rural uh, dichotomy. It, it really is, you know, Americans and people standing together uh, and working towards these collective goals uh, to find better connectivity, which ultimately has a huge impact or will have a huge impact on our future. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I've brought up many times on the on this podcast and, uh, you know, when talking with communities is that, you know, we are seeing literally before our eyes this the shift from consumerism when it comes to Internet and, and connectivity to a productive uh, society, a productive environment that we're living in. And so much of what we do today will, you know, will have a, a deep impact from, you know, new connectivity and new technologies as we move forward, and and we're, we we must decide today how we're going to deal with that and how we're going to fit into that, and our communities can respond, and we don't have to lose the uh, collective kind of makeup of what our communities are. Our communities can can still remain unique and different, uh, yet they can do so while thriving in a new digital kind of economy. And so appreciate the work that you're doing to, to to move that ball forward, particularly in Detroit, but but really as an example for for our country and others. No, I, I, absolutely. And I mean, the only thing I, I, I would say in that, you know, I, I've definitely gone on record saying that, like, because people have asked me, well, what do you, what would you say to rural Michigan communities that aren't connected in, a, a, in, in, in juxtaposition with Detroit that is semi-connected, as you might put it? And I just said, look, <laughs> unconnected Americans are bad for all of us. Underconnected Americans are bad for all of us because at the end of the day, that's one less small business purchase online. <laughs> That's one less person using leveraging telehealth for us to get additional learnings for deployment. It behooves us not to have a connected Michigan. That's great for Detroit. A connected Detroit is great for Michigan. <laughs> and so I don't. I, it, it's really difficult for me to even siphon and cut off and act as if it's not beneficial for me for that Western community in the UP to be connected. It's absolutely beneficial to me. It's beneficial to all of us. And I, I don't know why, for the life of me, we're, we're not looking at it as, it as it is. I know that you all obviously are, but for some of the other stakeholders that I'm talking to, it's like this. I'm like, yeah, the, the, the wedge is so unnecessary. It doesn't make sense because at, at any given time, my parents didn't grow up in, in rural uh, America. They grew up in an urban uh, city. And they, they moved to rural America. So it's like for any of us who are going to be moving around or doing anything, why in the world would we wait to connect people <laughs> anywhere we can facilitate <laughs> connectivity? We need to prioritize that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Joshua, is there anything else that you'd want to talk about today or that we haven't touched on? I, I, I think we could probably sit here the rest of the afternoon. Uh, certainly enjoying the conversation, but, but want to make sure that you have an opportunity to speak on anything that, that maybe we haven't already touched on. Uh, the, the only thing that, you know, I, I would probably circle back to a bit more is the uh, I, I know I talked a bit about policy and specifically Washington, uh, particularly under this administration, it seemed might be prioritizing um, the urban, urban communities juxtaposed with you know rural communities as it relates to connectivity. But I think what precludes that is an emphasis on storytelling. So as we t start talking about the communities who are most impacted by the digital divide, um, you know, for practitioners on the ground who are wanting to make a difference in the community, one really 
big and easy way to do this is being collating these stories and these narratives. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be, oh, I'm going to go to the poorest of the poor in my community and glean stories from there. Uh, you know, I think that we have to do a significantly better job. And this is an indictment on, on, on me, on Connect 3 and 3. We've touched so many lives, uh, but yet the stories that we're telling are, I mean, they're, they're non-existent. I mean, you, every now and then you might run across something, an article with media that we released, uh, a podcast that we've done, but it's like we are not doing it consistently enough. So if we're looking at people in Washington saying, well, they need to figure it out. Well, the onus kind of rests on us too to empower them to figure it out. And so we can come up with sensible solutions all day and, and, and great you know, platitudes and talking points, but what's going to move people? Those kids who are sitting at Taco Bell doing doing their homework using that Wi-Fi. That that's the story. That's the narrative that is happening every single day in Michigan communities and rural and urban environments. But yet we're not collecting and mobilizing our senators with these stories. And so as I'm talking to you know some of our senators, sometimes it's this: Yeah, Josh, we hear what you're saying. We see what you're doing. Great, but we need to be able to make this um, personable. Uh, we need to be able to put a face to these issues. Uh, and I, I think that that's going to be a big focus for obviously us this year in Detroit. Uh, but I think that I would I would like to charge other communities who are listening to say, let's let's begin collating these stories and these narratives for us to then empower people in Washington to help change outcomes in our communities. Yeah, it's so, so true. And, and really part of the impetus behind uh, even this podcast is, you know, is to start bringing more awareness um, you know, initially of of the the task force that that has been created this year, but you know, ultimately is is starting to have more and more conversations at that local level. Um, hearing back from you know a local practitioner, you know, local folks who are actually engaged and working to do exactly what you and I are talking about today, and, and that's to you know to mobilize their community to understand uh, what they you know what the needs are, and, and to be able to share that story, and, and so. You know, one of the things that we hope with this podcast is to really be able to to leverage, you know, the you know the director of of IT for you know school district X to to prove to the director of IT at another school district that yeah, you too can be engaged, at, you know, at your local level to to have a true impact here, and and that you know obviously has its own trickle down effect when you start talking about communities. Um, and, and, you know, our own personal networks and those stories begin to impact and, and, and creates that, you know, that understanding and, and really creates the narrative of the reality. And, and ultimately, then you have that uh, you have those that storyline that paints a true perspective of, of the reality for uh, our decision makers, whether that be local, state, federal. Uh, and, and so I, I could not agree more with that idea of telling stories uh, and, and the importance of that. Is there anything else you want to want to mention today? Uh, no, I, I think that uh, I guess from a, a, a wrapping up standpoint, um, you know, the a lot of the work that we're doing, uh, we're updating it much more to our website, connect3and3.org. And I would implore anyone who wants to get involved in Connect 3 and 3, it's Pretty simple. <laughs> There's a survey on our site where people can fill it out. Yeah, I believe it's under how to click here to join the Connect 3 and 3 movement. Uh, so for folks who want to stay abreast of our uh, of our progress or who even want to weigh in on what we're doing and say, hey, might you do this? Uh, obviously, I'm reflecting back on that value of you know locally led, expertly informed. So again, we're not going to turn down expert counsel from folks who have done this work. We don't have all the solutions. I just think that we're closer 
to the uh, starting line for collective, uh, you know, community empowerment than a lot of other cities. But that being said, I want to thank, obviously, uh, Connected Nation and, and, and U.S. for even reaching out um, and, and giving us the opportunity to be heard on a larger stage. Um, we're, we're always thankful for opportunities like that. And, um, you know, any other communities that are either getting into this work or uh, who are doing this work and finding it to be very, very difficult, um, we're with you. And hopefully we can find ways to work together significantly more in the future. Uh, Joshua, I certainly appreciate that. And we want to thank you again for joining us today. Uh, thanks for all you're doing to help secure digital future for Michiganders and, and specifically Detroiters. Today's guest has been Joshua Edmonds, the city of Detroit's director of digital inclusion. I'm Wes Kerr. Thanks for listening to Keeping Connected. If you like the show and want to know more about our nonprofit, head to connectednation.org and look for the latest episodes on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, or Spotify.